This morning, we're going to look at Galatians 2.20. We're going to preach a topical sermon on the abiding life in Christ. And so we're going to jump all over Scripture. Most of the verses will be on the screen. We're going to go to John chapter 15, Revelation chapter 2, and Revelation chapter 3 as well. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to use them. Let me pray. Oh, Father, Lord, thank you for giving us this time, Lord, to be in your word, Lord, to sit under the teaching from your word, Lord, as your spirit leads, guides, and directs, Lord, we pray that you would illuminate these texts to us today, Lord, that the deep truths that are rooted here, Lord, would be received well and heard and believed in a more fuller way. Lord, I pray that I myself am no more than a mere signpost pointing to you. Lord, a mere channel of grace for the people this morning. Lord, that you would remove me and put yourself here this morning. That all focus would be on you and exalting yourself. For Lord, we know that it is in your great desire and your great will that you yourself would be exalted, exalted in this sermon and exalted in the lives of your people. And Lord, that is the intent of the sermon, to exalt you and for us to see you more beautifully, to us, for us to see you in more of your glory, Lord, so that you would continue to be the focus of our lives, or that we would learn to desire you more and more and more, or that we would come to find our life in you on a more practical level. Oh Lord, be exalted here this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right. The Christian life is not easy but it is simple. In fact, it is so simple that I really truly believe that the church today has largely rejected the simplicity of it and in turn has overcomplicated the truth of what Christianity is. So if I were to ask what is Christianity, a quick Google search will tell me that Christianity is the religion based on the person and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth or its beliefs and practices. If I were to ask a friend, they would probably say something along the lines of Christianity is living for God or living for the gospel. Maybe they will give me the definition of what it is to be a Christian, which is to be a follower of Christ. And so I ask you to, to think about what is Christianity? What do you think it is? What does it mean to be a Christian? To quote Paul in Galatians 2.20a, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is a verse that I think is very common, talked about a lot 
repeated, memorized. But I don't think we've understood the depths of what Paul is saying here. It's easy for us to intellectually grasp this and then volitionally live out something else. I think Paul gives us the answer to what true Christianity is here in this verse. The Christian life is Jesus literally, literally, not figuratively, literally living his life in you. Jesus Christ lives his life in you. That's what Paul says. That's through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or we may call it the indwelling life of Jesus in his people. However, our experiences can often seem like that is not the case. We'll say it, we'll say that Jesus lives in us, and we can believe it. And maybe there are times where we feel extra spiritual, where we're like, whoa, that was clearly Jesus in me. Maybe as we're giving the gospel to someone or we're serving in a way that's not natural for us, and we're like, that was totally Jesus in me, because that was not me. That's not natural for me. But often our experience of the Christian life is us doing the work, And we're not really conscientiously thinking of how it is Christ in us doing the work. To quote a book I'm reading, the author says, Christianity to most people is like an old iron bed, firm at both ends and sagging in the middle. On one end, you trust in Christ as Savior and you get your sins forgiven. On the other end, one day you will die and go to heaven. In between, it gets pretty desperate. You have lots of questions that all boil down to one. Where is the abundant life that Jesus promised? Now, before I continue, I beg of you, you will genuinely hear me out on this sermon as this abundant life of abiding in Christ is something that we all need to do more, myself included. To illustrate, I want to ask a series of questions. Think about it and answer them honestly. How many of us are easily stressed out? How many of us are anxious or depressed, exhausted or tired in life? We're dissatisfied with our job, our marriage, our family, our church. We're bogged down. We're just coasting through life. Maybe we're apathetic. How many of us have little to no desire for God or for reading the Word or for praying? How many of us wrestle with sins or maybe have given up with certain sins because there seems to be no victory? How many of us find more enjoyment in life while we are spending time with family and friends, or watching a movie, or participating in a favorite hobby, or watching your favorite team on TV, or making more money? How many of us ask ourselves, is this really it? Is this all Christianity has to offer? How many of us, how many of us ask ourselves, is Christianity even real? Why am I wasting my time with this? How many of us are afraid of death? How many of us question our salvation? 
how many of us are certain that the Holy Spirit lives in us because we see and feel him at work? How many of us desire signs and wonders to affirm our faith? If any of those questions resonated with you, then this sermon is for you. And if none of them did, then as the Apostle Paul says, excel still more. So please listen and pray that God would open your ears, your heart, and your mind. In fact, let's take a minute to pray again as we continue. Lord, please, Lord, work in this time. Work in our hearts. Soften our hearts. Prepare our hearts, Lord, to know you more. For that is the goal of the Christian life, to know you more, to be consumed by you more. And Lord, as we see the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 be so excited and so joyful to press on, Lord, we pray that you would give us that same zeal for you. Lord, although he has nothing physically, he says he has everything he needs because he has you. Lord, that is so easy for us to agree with on an intellectual basis. But Lord, so tough to live out volitionally. Lord, cause us to abide in you more in a practical sense. Lord, to understand the truth of the positional reality that we have in Christ because of your sacrifice and because of your indwelling spirit within us. Lord, I pray that we all leave here this morning desiring more of you and trusting ourselves to you more. Lord, be with us. Exalt yourself. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The Christian life is to be abundant. Biblically speaking, regardless of the physical quality of your life, you and your brothers and sisters in Christ really should be the most excited, joyful, at peace, and content people on this earth. No questions asked. Bear with me as I read this lengthy quote from Major Ian Thomas to expound on this point. He says, there are few things quite so boring as being religious, but there is nothing quite so exciting as being a Christian. Most folks have never discovered the difference between the one and the other, so that there are those who sincerely try to live a life they do not have, substituting religion for God, Christianity for Christ, and their own noble endeavors for the energy, joy, and power of the Holy Spirit. In the absence of reality, they can only grasp at ritual, stubbornly defending the latter in the absence of the former, lest they be found with neither. They are lamps without oil, cars without gas, pins without ink, baffled at their own impotence in the absence of all that alone can make man functional. For man was so engineered by God that the presence of the creator within the creature is indispensable to his humanity. Christ gave himself for us to give himself to us. His presence puts God back into the man. He came that we might have life, God's life. There are those who have a life they never live. They have come to Christ and thanked him only for what he did, but do not live in the power of who he is. Between the Jesus who was 
and the Jesus who will be, they live in a spiritual vacuum, trying with no little zeal to live for Christ a life that only he can live, perpetually begging for what in him they already have. You see, we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when we beg him for more, what it shows us is that we're not resting in the fact that we already have everything that we need. Christ in us, Christ literally lives his life in us. You see, therefore, in our flesh, we cannot live out the Christian life, nor were we created to do so. Only Christ perfectly lived the Christian life, and therefore only Christ can now live it in you. You can't. Again, to quote Major Ian Thomas, it takes God in the man for man to be the man that God made man to be. Meaning you cannot live this life lest it be for God living his life in you. Christianity is simple. Jesus lives in you. That's it. And as he lives his life in us, we are conformed more and more to Christ-likeness. Not because he is making Christian better. He doesn't need to make us better. But because he's making us weaker. He's killing our flesh. He's getting rid of us. And he's making more of himself. Therefore, if we truly desire to live the Christian life, then we must continually, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, year after year, die to self and live in Christ. Therefore, this crucifixion of self in Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, is not just a one-time event. He's not just talking about the time in which he was justified, made right before the Lord. I was crucified, past tense, but he's talking about a continual crucifixion of himself in which he now needs Christ to live in him daily, which is why in 1 Corinthians 15.31b, he says, point blank, I die daily. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he writes, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He says, consider yourself dead to sin. Why? Because you've already been crucified with Christ. Just as Christ died and bore the sins of his people on the cross, he's saying you yourself have also died. Your sins have been nailed to the cross. So consider that a reality. And because that is a reality, now continue to put your sins to death. It's an already completed act. Yet he says we need to continue to not let this sin reign in our mortal bodies. You see, these two texts indicate that although on a positional sense we are dead to sin, on a practical level we must continue to put the deeds and the desires of the flesh to death. And in turn, although in a positional sense we are already in Christ, 
we must, on a practical level, continue to find our abode in Christ. This is the point of the illustration of the old iron bed. Yes, you received the forgiveness of sins at your justification. At your moment of belief, you were forgiven, wholly and fully made complete in Christ Jesus. And now you are awaiting the other end of the bed, eternity with Christ. But there's still this middle area. And in that middle area, we are to practically live in the crucifixion of self and live in the abiding life of Christ. It's not enough to just know those. That knowledge of those things will get you to heaven. But the abundant life that Jesus has called us for within Christianity is found in making your abode in Christ on a daily level in the most practical sense. This duality of terms, the positional level and the practical level, is vital for Christian living. Because if we only understand them in a positional sense, then our lives will have little to none of the abundance. And for many, we will become so easily hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that we create a pseudo-peace, a pseudo-joy, a false peace, a false joy that we live in, where we accredit our decent or good life to Christ because we know that we're supposed to, when in reality, our peace and joy really are coming from our relationship status, if I'm getting along with my spouse, if my kids are behaving, whether or not I have the car or home I desire or have always dreamed of, whether or not I have time for hobbies or money for vacations or enough money in the savings account. However, what would happen if all of those things were stripped away? Would you still have peace and joy? You see, this is where the rubber meets the road for Christianity. This is the difference between having a saggy mattress and a firm one. You are still saved, but is your life abundant? This is my push for us this morning. Now I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And Revelation chapter 3. Where I will read about two different churches that Jesus himself writes to. Again, these are churches made up of believers, or at least people who think they're believers. People that would call themselves Christians and say they have a desire to live for Christ. And again, just as earlier, we asked ourselves some questions as we're reading these texts. I ask that we do the same. As we're reading them, to figure out the church that we most align ourselves with as an individual, the church that we align ourselves with at Grace Church and the church in America as a whole, which church better represents us? Not which church we think should we represent, but which one does? Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. An angel of the church in Smyrna 
right? The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. You see, there's seven letters in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. Two of the letters Jesus writes and just encourages them for their good faith. This is one of them. Two of them, he says, only rebukes. And to three of them, he has both positivity and negativity about their Christian life. And what we see here in the letter to the church of Smyrna is that these people are impoverished. They have nothing. They are broke. They have no possessions. They have no money. They are under severe trial and tribulation. And Jesus says, it's going to get worse. Yet Jesus says they are rich. Rich how? Clearly not in physical wealth. But he's not talking about eternity either. He's not saying you guys are rich because one day you will be in eternity where you have riches abundantly. Because that comes when he talks about the crown of life that they will receive. The richness that he is talking about here is the abundant life in Jesus Christ. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It is that these people, despite the poverty, despite the trial and tribulation, they have everything they need in Christ Jesus. Although poor, although trial-ridden, Jesus says, you are rich. Because he goes there and he sees the joy, the excitement, the peace, the contentment, and the zeal and the will and the desire to live for Christ and to continually entrust themselves to him more and more. This is what Jesus says in John 10.10b. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the life that the church of Smyrna has. Abundant life in Christ Jesus despite the worst imaginable trials, persecutions, and financial status. Even in sheer chaos, poverty, and persecution, Jesus is saying that this church is rich. Not even grumbling and complaining over the fact that they are getting beaten to death, that they will be imprisoned to the point of death. But they are rich because they have Christ. Rich with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How? Not because they have things, and not because they just simply know that God is in control, but because they are attached to the vine. They are abiding in Jesus, and He, the same Jesus that had a very similar life, is living in them. And therefore, he is producing the same fruits that were present in him. You understand that? That this is what Jesus is talking about. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, Jesus lives in you. 
The, the, the circumstances that the church of Smyrna has, do you think that's foreign to Jesus? Right? Pastor Mark talked about in the devotional this morning that Jesus was out there healing people and they wanted to kill him for it. These people are out here worshiping Jesus and they want to kill them for it. What better anchor to have in your life than Christ himself? What better person to have to produce the joy, the peace, the rest that you need than Jesus himself, the same Jesus that bore the burdens for us, the same Jesus that endured the cross. Jesus lives in them and Jesus lives in us. Now look at Revelation chapter 3. Verses 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, a very common section in Scripture. He says, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. These people are not reliant upon God like Smyrna is. Because they have, by their wealth and their possessions, fooled themselves into self-sufficiency. Guys, recognize that this is a church much like ours. This is a church within a community made up of professing believers. They say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You see, despite these people's physical abundance, Jesus says they are actually wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. He says, you can say all you want that you have everything and that you don't need anything, but you actually have nothing. And you're lukewarm and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you have nothing. Instead, he says at the end, be zealous and repent. Open the door to me so that I can come in and dine with you, so that I can come in with you and overcome just like I overcame. He says, Laodicea are victims of their circumstances. They are victims of their culture. They are victims of the, the wealth and abundance that they live in. And because of this, they have been blinded by their need for Christ. 
They don't think they need him. They think they, they know they need him to get to heaven, but they don't think they need him for anything else because they have everything else covered on this life. From belief for forgiveness of sins to the day of eternity, they have everything. And Jesus says, you actually have nothing. Did you know that the average income across the globe is roughly $9,000 a year? The average income across the globe is roughly $9,000 a year, and the average income in this area alone is around $45,000 a year. So if you make the average for the valley, then you make nearly five times more than every person on earth with an income. We don't lack for anything in this country. We don't lack for anything. But I am afraid that in our lack of lacking, we have convinced ourselves that God has given us this land, country, freedoms, and blessings so that we can have more. And instead of giving these things up to him, instead of stewarding the stuff that we've been entrusted with well, we want more. And we set our minds and our hearts on more. And we accumulate more. And instead of having Christ be our sustenance, physical things become our sustenance. And we masquerade them with, God wants me to have it, or God allows me to have it. I have the freedom in Christ to take and to gather and to accumulate. Rather than holding things loosely, what are we finding our abode in? Are we abiding in Christ or are we abiding in the things that this country has given us? We have to recognize that American Christianity is not the norm. For most churches, for most countries, when they read the Bible and they look at the sheer chaos that their life is in, it makes perfect sense. They're not thinking to themselves, hey, what about that abundant life that I was promised? Where I have a really nice house and our family has two or three vehicles and we get to go home to air conditioning and my kids have several different outfits and we get to do laundry once a week in our washer and dryer and my wife gets to put the food in the oven. Like, they're not thinking that. They're looking at their life and the sheer chaos and the trial and the tribulation and the persecution and they're thinking, yeah, that's pretty much what I read in Scripture. And the abundant life is found in Christ being their everything. They get to endure because they have Christ. And that's beautiful. Like this is why Christianity spreads like wildfire in persecution. Because the people that aren't persecuted have everything that this world tells you that you need to be happy. And the people who are being persecuted have nothing that the world tells you that you need to be happy. Yet they're the most joyful, content people on earth and they are continually entrusting themselves to the Lord because Jesus lives in them and by their faith these unbelievers are encouraged and they think what in the world is going on they have nothing their children are being ripped from them their feet are literally being held to the fire they live in shacks they sleep on dirt floors they have nothing yet they have everything why The lives of the apostles 
is one of the greatest apologetics that we have in Christendom. Because it's a group of people who had everything. Paul specifically. That dude had everything. And these apostles gave it all up to follow Christ. Enduring the, the trials and sufferings. Because they had everything they needed in Christ. Everything. They didn't store up for themselves. They left it all behind. They left the fishing nets behind. They left the friends behind. They left the hobbies behind. And they followed Jesus. And Paul says, join with me, brethren, in my example. You see, Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 through 24, in the middle of talking about money, where he starts this section off with, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. And he ends this passage with, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth, he says. Jesus is talking to followers of Christ. He's talking to people that desire to follow him. And he gives them this truth on money and wealth and possessions. And I know it's talked about a lot, but it's because Jesus himself talks about it a lot. He warns about this stuff so much. Like, keep in mind, guys, that when Jesus is writing or, or speaking these things, he is living in a time where there is, like, legitimate idolatry. Where there are still people going to pagan temples to worship their graven images and gods that they have made with their own hands. Like, we don't see that today. Like, there are temple prostitutes and all these kinds of things that they're going and participating in pagan sexual worship. And Jesus isn't warning against that. In the time of all of this idolatry, this pagan idolatry that exists, he warns about money and wealth and possessions. Because look what he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Laodicea was storing up for themselves treasures on earth. Smyrna was not. They had nothing. And you could say, well, Laodicea was, was just more of a, uh, a diverse area where, where it was more economically driven than Smyrna. But we're not told that in Scripture. We see one church where the Christians are living in poverty. And we see another church where they're living in abundance. And I'm not preaching a poverty gospel where you have to be poor to inherit the kingdom of God. That's just as heretical as the prosperity gospel where you have to be rich to find favor with God. The point of what Jesus is getting at is we idolize money more than we think we do. We store up for ourselves more than we think we do. For instance, if we had a need at this church and we said, guys, we need $15,000 by today because there is someone in our church that needs it. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't have that. It's not in my wallet. It's not in my pocket. And you're thinking, but I'm saving up for a motorcycle. And so now you have come to the conclusion that you don't have money to give to that need in the church because your money is being stored up for a motorcycle. That's idolatry. That's what Jesus is getting at. 
We live for ourselves and therefore we have none to give others. You see, in 1 Timothy 6, he says that we are to be, he says, instruct the rich. Guys, we are rich. We are more rich than 90% of the world. Again, we already distinguish the fact that we live in more wealth and abundance in this country than most countries. In fact, five times more than the average income. And he says in 1 Timothy 6, instruct the rich to be generous, to be generous, so we should constantly be holding our, our money and our positions with an open hand, take, 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 and he says, and to be ready to share. And so we don't just meet our quota for the month or our quota for the year and say, I'm going to give this much and no further. He's saying, be generous. Come up with how much you're going to give and then be ready to be plundered more. Be ready to give more. Because that's why God has blessed us, to bless others. Why this is important is because we're talking about abiding in Christ. And it's so easy for us to say we abide in Christ, but really we're abiding in possessions. We're abiding in money. That's where our joy and our rest and our hope comes from. Think about the, the stress and the anxiety that comes from finances. Jesus had nothing. He wasn't stressed with finances. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. He wasn't stressed with not having a home. Jesus had perfect joy, perfect peace, perfect contentment. And again, the point that we're trying to make here is that that same Jesus lives in you. He lives in you. Jesus, who came to serve others relentlessly, lives in you. So smack dab in the middle of this section in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, he writes, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is so easy for our money to follow our heart. And where our money is going oftentimes reveals where our heart is. Where our time is going often reveals where our heart is. And again, let's ask ourselves, where was Jesus' heart? Jesus' heart was on doing the will of the Father. Jesus' heart was on his people. He came to do the will of the Father and to serve his people. On the cross... He is fulfilling the Father's good and gracious plan for all of humanity, and He is bearing the sins for His people. What great love is this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus had God's will on His heart and your life on His heart. Ours ought to be the same. He viewed money and used it and spoke about it in a very different way than we in America do. Read through the Gospels and see what Jesus has to say about money. He talks about it a lot. And very rarely does he say, store up for yourselves. Spend it on yourself. People that I am speaking to, I have given you so much money so that you can go live the best life now here on this earth while you await eternity. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I've given to you a plenty. I've given you this, this amazing job where you make so much money so that you can live this life however you envision it. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that. He makes people rich. He makes people poor. All for the sake of so that we would give and serve and entrust ourselves to Him. The same Spirit that lived in Him is the same Spirit that lives in us. Remember the story of the rich young ruler. 
The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, do all these commands. And he says, ah, those things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus says, go, sell your possessions to the poor, or not sell them to the poor. (laughs) Go sell your possessions and give all you have to the poor. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it, and Jesus then says, it's more possible, right, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into paradise. And I think we often read this story and know this story and think, whew, I'm glad I'm not that guy. But if I was that guy, I'd give it up. But yet we live our lives right now holding on so tightly to the things that we have. Making our abide in these things, making our abode in these things rather than in Christ. You know, I think the only difference between the rich young ruler and us sometimes is that the rich young ruler asked Jesus what he was to do. We just assume. It's not like the rich young ruler was just out walking around one day and a voice came down from heaven and was like, Hey, rich young ruler, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And he's like, Nope, can't do it. So if that's what you're waiting for, it's not going to happen. I'm not saying give all you have to the poor. What I'm saying is, hey, when was the last time we implored the Lord religiously, relentlessly, how do you want me to spend my money? Because it's not my money, it's your money. How do you want me to spend my time? Because it's not my time, it's your time. How do you want me to steward my possessions? Because they're not my possessions, they're yours. What if we asked Christ just like the rich young ruler did? Maybe he would reveal to us the hardness of our hearts like the rich young ruler's heart was hard. You see, things had him. He couldn't give up things. We like to think that we can have Jesus and things. We can't. We can only have Jesus or we can only have things. Church, we need to be consumed by and with Christ for the glory of Christ. We need to. In the very next verse, in Matthew 6, verse 25, he says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He doesn't say, Church, think about, strongly consider whether or not you should buy that second home or if you should upgrade your vehicle, or if you should get that new phone, or if you should take your family on a vacation. Isn't life more than a a better house and a better car and a nicer phone and and a vacation? He says, don't even worry about what you'll eat, drink, or put on. We don't worry about that kind of stuff in the church in America. We're not, we're not waking up every day thinking, where's my next meal going to come from? How am I even going to drink? What if I don't have clothes to put on or a place to lay my head? Instead, we can be so easily fixated on finding comfort in our homes and possessions, which is why we continually shovel money to do upgrades in our lives. Upgrades, upgrades, upgrades. You know what upgrades really reveal? That we're not content. Upgrades reveal that we are not finding our abode in Christ oftentimes because the reality is, think about this. What if you have saved up $70,000 to to, to just redo the kitchen in your house? $70,000. 
And the Lord said, give that money to missions. What is better for the kingdom of God? That that $70,000 that you worked so hard for goes into your kitchen? Or that it goes into bringing the gospel to the nations? Like we don't think about these things. Jesus says, don't worry about what you'll eat, drink, or wear. And we're focused on making this life in the physical sense more comfortable. We can have everything that we need and what our hearts desire. It's easy to live and operate with the mentality that we need a bigger, cozier home to feel at peace in or to feel like you've made it. Our businesses need to make more money. We need that second home or cabin or boat or fancy vacation. And therefore, the majority of our time is spent working and accumulating wealth so that we can have everything we want. Not need, but want. Instead of resting in the fact that we already do have everything we need in Christ Jesus. That's the point. Jesus isn't saying, hey, give up your things and don't store up for yourselves because I want your life to be on this side of glory miserable. It's the opposite. He says, don't be held on to these things. Don't be so consumed with these things. Not because he doesn't want you to have, but because he wants to have you. Because in him, you have everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. Everything you need. Everything you need. Again, look at the church of Smyrna as the perfect example of living this out. Jesus says they're rich. Oh, what a testimony. What if we implored him for what he wants for our lives rather than making decisions and hoping he blesses them? What if we took him seriously when he said that the Christian life is about him and to be lived through him? What if we truly were content with having nothing but Christ and our lives reflected that? Again, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, it says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Peter is writing this in the midst of intense persecution. He literally dies just a few years after where he's hung upside down on a cross. And he's saying, we've been given everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Every time that thought pops into your head, oh, I just need this or I just want this because such and such a reason, the answer really is, no, you don't. No, you don't. You only need Christ. You can want that. Maybe God even wants you to have it. But I ask that you implore him. I ask that his exaltation in your life is the focus. There's nothing greater than having everything we need in Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. He writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Church, Christ is in us. Christ is in us. Like Major Ian Thomas said, what if we stopped begging him for more and we instead realized that we have all we need in him? You don't need more joy. You just need Jesus. You don't need more peace. You just need Jesus. And the greatness of that statement is that you already have Jesus. So your lack of joy, your lack of peace isn't from a result of you not having it. It's from a result of you not abiding in what you already do have. Look at Colossians 1, 27 and 28. 
Paul writes, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Are we as a church adamantly working towards this goal? We should be. That we desire We desire to be made complete in Christ and that we rest and reflect upon the fact that Christ in us is our hope of glory. Christ in us is the abundant life now. Again, guys, remember the joy of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. He has nothing. He says he counts everything in his life as dung, but he presses on for the pursuit of gaining Christ more. More and more and more of Christ is all he desires, so much so that in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I've learned the secret of contentment. I've had nothing and I've had everything. Yet, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Because it is Christ that he desires and it is Christ that we should desire. And it is Christ who lives in us so that we really do have all that our hearts could desire. Colossians 2.6, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. So walk in Christ. Christ lives in you. Christ volitionally will, will live his life in you. That means we are to live this life as if it is Christ living in us because it is Christ living in us. So how would Christ walk? What does this mean? Think about for a second how you spent yesterday. Is that how Jesus would have spent yesterday? Think about how you felt yesterday. Is that how Jesus would have felt? This isn't to shame you or to discourage you. It's to do the opposite. It's to encourage you to be like, whoa, yesterday might not have been the most glorious day. There was trials and hiccups and I got in a fight with my spouse and my kids were misbehaving and I was kind of worn out and beaten down. I didn't even know if I was going to come here today. I was just kind of miserable. The solution Abide in Christ. Rest in Christ. He's all you need and he is everything that you have. Don't let your relationship status with your spouse be the the indicator of your joy or the indicator of your peace. Don't let relationships between friends be that. Don't let your mean boss get in the way of your joy that you have always in Christ. Don't let sicknesses or loss of family members cause you To not be joyful, Christ had joy all the time, completely satisfied. Colossians 2.10, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Jesus Christ is in you. Because Jesus is in you, you are complete. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Guys, this is not just a flippant phrase. Paul is not just being cute with his writing. He is literally meaning his life is now yours. He has made you alive with him. Jesus lives in you. Everything that Jesus had and did is now in you. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Again, you see the wording, Christ who is our life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Christ, our life is to look different. 
Again, it's not about refining me. This Christianity, this sanctification is not about refining me. It's about losing me. Christianity is about losing me and practically gaining more of Christ. Less of me, more of him. I must decrease so he must increase. Less of Christian, more of Christ. John chapter 14, verses 19 through 20. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live and you will, see, and you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. You see, just as the fullness of deity dwelt in Christ, now Christ lives in you. Jesus Christ lived 100% as a human, but had the indwelling of the Spirit in him. Jesus now lives in us in the same way. Do you see what Scripture teaches? The Christian life isn't about you. It's about Jesus. And therefore, the admonition for us is to make, is to make this a present and practical reality all the time. So that when we read in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The focus and reality of our lives is that we should take our eyes off of self and place them onto Christ. Oh man. I wanted to get to John chapter 15 today. That will not happen. Read John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17 on your own. Look at it and see what abiding in Christ produces. In, chapters, in verses 4 and 5 and verse 16, you'll see that abiding in Christ bears fruit. This is the fruits of the Spirit and good Christ-exalting works. In verse 7 and 16b, you will see that as you abide in Christ, you get what you pray for because your will has been aligned with His will. In verse 8, you'll see that by abiding in Christ, you prove to be a disciple of Christ. In verses 9 and 10, you'll see that you will feel the love of Christ. Verse 11, you'll see that you will receive full joy in Christ. In verse 17, you'll see that you will have the love that you need to love one another. I want to say this point because it, it stuck out to me the other day. I had a guy tell me the other day, he said, I don't think that it is possible for humans to love unconditionally. I said, you're right. That's the point. You are called to love unconditionally, but you can't. But Jesus can. And he lives in you. And Jesus did love unconditionally, and he still does. And he is abiding in you so you can love unconditionally. Church, we need not seek anything else in this life other than Christ. I'll close with this. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, for to, me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you are abiding in Christ, you will not fear death. You will look forward to it. There will be no more, nothing more exciting to you than to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that desire will make itself known in this life by your desire to live in Christ now. I was in Texas a couple weeks ago, and I was talking to John. John's the most important person in my life. This man loves Jesus. He is the man that I seek to imitate as he imitates Christ. He's about 35 years old, has a wife, four daughters. He lives in this bubble at the Bible school that I attended. 
where he has great Christ-exalting Christian community. There's 60 students that come every year that are excited to learn about Jesus and to grow. His children have a great homeschool community where they are untainted and unstained by the world. This is literally the perfect environment to raise your kids in and to grow in Christ-likeness. He's a part of a great Bible-teaching, Christ-exalting church where there are countless spirit-filled Christians that live out their generosity and their Christ-likeness. They live in very humble means, but they have everything that they need. John, next week, is taking his wife and his two oldest daughters to Chad, Africa. Because he's felt for the last three years a stirring within him to leave the church in America, the, the, the Christian culture in America, and go overseas and minister to Muslims in Africa. The, unroot, the unreached people group over here. Where it is dangerous, crime-ridden, and a very unsafe place to raise his children. Unless the Lord makes it clear through this trip that they are not to go, they're moving there next spring or next summer. I asked John, is this a tough decision for your family to make? For your kids, raising them in a safe environment, leaving the community that you have here at the hill, money, you'll be pinched. Is this a tough decision? To which right away he said, no. If the Lord is in it, it's an easy decision to make. Nothing else matters. You see, that ought to be our heart's response to every area of our lives, too. That was so encouraging to me. Because the Spirit transcends any and all human logic and reason. You can think, how can I have joy when I'm sick? You still have Jesus. What about when my car gets totaled? You still have Jesus. What about when your team loses the national championship? You still have Jesus. What about when you're fed food that you don't like? You still have Jesus. What about when a family member dies? You still have Jesus. What about when you get fired from your job? You still have Jesus. What about when you're persecuted? You still have Jesus. You see, that's the point. We still have Jesus. We have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. As Christians, we need to be the most flexible people, willing to suffer wrong and to be defrauded, willing to be all things to all people, as well as the most unshakable people in our faith because of Christ. As believers, we are to go where he says to go, live how he says to live, and when we do, as we abide in him, no matter what happens in life or where he moves us or what he gives us, we truly have all we need in Christ. Church, my prayer for both you and I is that we would all continue to see the excellencies of Christ, so much so that everything else in life would lose its luster. Let us not be consumed by the world or by hobbies or our desires, but instead let us be consumed with our Lord, the only one who can provide us with everything we need, because everything we need is Jesus and him alone. Let's work on being able to echo Galatians 2.20 by running to him and resting in him, by earnestly praying for him to make us more and more content with him and alive in him so that our lives would truly look like his, because after all, Christianity is Christ living his life out in yours. Let's experience this. Let's, let's die daily, and let's abide in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you 
Lord, for the outrageous amount of blessings that you have so freely bestowed upon us. Lord, we pray that you, Lord, would become more and more our heart's desire. Lord, that we would yearn for you more. Lord, that we would entrust ourselves to you. Lord, that we would implore you more. Lord, that we would be consumed with you more. Lord, that no matter what happens in our lives, we wouldn't be shaken, we wouldn't be moved. But Lord, that we would be wholly and fully at peace with you, at rest in you. We would have joy and satisfaction in you. Lord, that we would make our abode in you. Lord, as that, that you would make the truth of you living in us more of a reality, more of an experiential reality for us. Lord, align our hearts to pray for this more. Align our wills to be aligned with yours. Lord, constantly bring to mind the truth that we have everything we need in you. Everything we need in you. And Lord, let us live that out. Let us be faithful witnesses to your glorious grace of you abiding in us and us in you. Lord, be exalted. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.